And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and it's brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple, or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. One of the cool things about being on Twitter is the interaction with people. And I never take that for granted because you're always looking for different things. To do a podcast like this, it's very easy uh, to slip into movie review mode. And again, I've always said the, the internet doesn't need one more movie review, podcast, website, blog, forum, whatever. A follower of mine uh, suggested I do uh, a cinema episode on Universal's Dark Universe. And the failure of that to translate into really what it would have been is horror's Marvel Comics Universe, the MCU. Is cinema present here? And for cinema to exist, C-Y-N-E-M-A... You have to see if something was made that they could have done better and they simply did not try. So it's not ragging just on the dark universe and the expanded universe of these classic monsters, you know, remade again and, you know, critiquing that. It's more looking at was this thought out properly? Was it executed properly? Could it all have been done better? So you got to go back a little bit. The number one thing that I want to talk about in this episode is context, historical context, especially in order to talk about the present day failure, the aborted attempt at Universal's dark universe, expanded universe kind of thing. You have to go back to Universal's classic monsters era during times of economic distress, horror movies thrive. Now, I know you could say, well, no comedies, whatever. No, actually Horror does extremely well in economic downturns, and there's plenty of data to support this. And I've talked about this in previous episodes, so I'm not going to belabor all of that. But the point is, there is a reason why Universal had its golden monster horror era during the Great Depression. So you have to go back a little bit. 1929 is the stock market crash. By 1931, Frankenstein. Dracula. Scary movies were reigning supreme at the box office. And you have Universal's Frankenstein. And you have Bela Lugosi's Dracula, Universal's Dracula. And both of them score extremely well. In fact, Lugosi had moved his stage performance over onto film. And at that time, there was just nobody better who could have played Count Dracula. And an unknown at that time, Boris Karloff, of course, became the monster. And we all know the history, or most of us that love horror know the history that Lugosi actually had the original shot at the monster, but according to legend, turned the role down because of a lack of of dialogue and being buried under lots of makeup. While Dracula did spawn a sequel, and it wasn't until much later, Dracula's Daughter, which you can argue is a direct sequel or whatever, what really heightened Frankenstein was its sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein, which if you thought that it was hard to top the original film, they did it. 
James Whale's sequel expanded the Monsters universe. And I'm wondering if that's where it all kind of started. Because a world was built. There really wasn't much of a world built with Dracula's daughter. It was it was a pale sequel, uh, basically almost a sequel in name only. There are only references made to the original film. It could really almost be a standalone picture. Uh, Lugosi really does not play into the film whatsoever, not from anything that I remember. But it was Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein that I feel started the expansion of this universe. And I remember as a kid being excited as these films developed. And, and keep in mind, they, they moved on, okay? There were a lot of standalone pictures. There was The Invisible Man with Claude Rains. There was The Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. You have all these monsters in The Phantom of the Opera, and it goes on and on and on. And somewhere along the line, somebody thought it was a good idea to start crossing them over. Now, from what I understand, this crossover kind of thing originated just as World War II was ending. And the monsters were getting a little long in the tooth. And that's where I want to go with this. I think the expanded universe of the original classic monster universe started with Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And that is arguable. I'm sure there are plenty out there that could you know, easily argue against that. But I think with the popularity of these and Universal locking up all of these monsters, almost, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, cornering the market in the monster business and having name brand monsters. I mean, these these monsters were known by name, the Wolfman, the Mummy, the Bride of Frankenstein, like instantly they were iconic. When you said Dracula, you really thought of nobody else but Bela Lugosi. So Universal had this name brand, trademark, iconic kind of universe. The horrors of the Great Depression were bad enough. And people were migrating across the nation. And, you know, people, the biggest fear on their minds was losing their homes. And so you, know, you paid your dime to go see a movie to kind of forget your problems for a while. And, and horror does a really good job with that. But by 1938, 37, 38, we're even earlier than that. We're starting to watch what's happening in Europe. And a far worse horror is starting to grow across the seas. With Hitler and Mussolini, they're moving in. They're chomping up territory, and they're just covering Europe and, and Africa like a wave. And the fear was, that's coming to us. December 7th, 1941, changed it all. The United States was plummeted into World War II, and we entered the fight. Suddenly, these monsters were not so scary any longer. And that doesn't really have anything to do with Universal's fault, but the times were changing. We were leaving an isolationist America where these kind of campfire ghost stories were extremely scary. And there is no horror worse than a parent sending their child off to fight and possibly die. So you're going up against a whole different kind of horror. And then from 1941 on, things changed rapidly. The United States is not only fighting Japan and Germany, but then the Soviet Union is involved and, and there is still that, that distrust of communism, obviously, and red scares, and, and nobody knows what's going on. And during this time, they continued to make these monster movies. But by 1944-45, as the war is starting to wind down and Americans can see that the war is coming to an end, the monsters themselves as separate units were not all that scary. 
as their parts. The sum was greater than the parts. And from what I understand, there, the origin of the crossover was uh, really the whole thing with uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And again, you can argue that there were different ones, but I remember as a boy uh, seeing, you know, all these kind of crossover films where Boris Karloff was no longer playing the monster and and we had House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein and John Carradine was playing Dracula and where was Bela Lugosi and and you know that it was starting to become a little muddled and then you have Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and you have all those different scenes which started to turn really into a soap opera that's what was going on. I mean, you have Lawrence Talbot, who, who wants to uh, find a cure for his werewolf affliction. And it just kept going on and on and, and layering on all these different things and moving in different directions and different actors playing different characters. And Karloff had stopped playing the monster. And you, you have Bela Lugosi then playing the monster. And as a kid, I started to wonder just... How did all these crossover films fit with the original ones? I mean, I didn't understand the concept of canon back then. I just knew that I grew up with what I had. And you saw these things only when they came on TV. It wasn't like I could pull DVDs or videotapes off the shelf and, and watch these things. So it became a little bit confusing. And then by the end of World War II... And the atomic bomb is let off, and then we start seeing the films of what happened in the concentration camps, and the Holocaust starts becoming a, a real thing to millions of Americans at home. Those horrors were far worse, and suddenly these monsters had not aged too well. And these monster mashup things culminated with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And while you can argue whether it's a classic movie, is it really a horror movie? I know that many people like to say, you know, hey, if, if I'm to introduce somebody to horror, what movie, especially a kid, if, I, if I'm introducing a kid to horror, what should I show them? And a lot of people suggest Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. And it continues to have a very warm spot with people, especially for nostalgia. Also, the question that I have is, was there really a fan base at that time? I mean... Nostalgia usually takes anywhere from 10 to 25 years to start kicking in when you start seeing a window. For example, in the 70s, there was nostalgia for the 50s. And now that we're in the 2000s, uh, now we're, we're waxing nostalgic, not just anymore for the 80s, but now the 90s are getting that nostalgia feel. So there really wasn't, by even the 1970s, there really wasn't a huge nostalgia wave because there really was no medium for this to be conveyed. You still caught these shows on television, on Creature Double Features and, and things like that. And the home video market still was not there. These things were still syndicated throughout Saturday afternoon and late night TV. So cable wasn't even really running all these old horror classics because they were free TV. While you had... Some of these stars continuing to stay in movies all through the 70s. Boris Karloff was still making stuff. And of course, you have Vincent Price and Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, who kind of came in and picked up the torch from the classic monsters. And then Hammer Films reinvented all of that again. And, and that just built to it, which was great. But there was still this, this longing or at least preference. You shouldn't even say longing at that point. But there was a preference for the classic black and white universal monsters. Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, while it did a lot of good, 
in perpetuating the uh, brand name of these monsters, it did some damage too because they were all played for laughs. And so you started seeing Abbott and Costello in these mashups and crossovers and things during the decline of the universal expanded universe. And that's the thing. That's where I really want to go with that. That the original expanded universe for the classic monsters really originated in its decline. So there's a negative connotation there. And as history started to shove the horror of these monsters to the side, I mean, how do you compete with the horrific images of the atomic bombings with children with skin burned off their backs and people blinded by blasts and knowing that the very thing that was let off in that New Mexico desert could now wipe out all of us at any time. And that's why you got a whole shift that even uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood acknowledged where now it was about UFOs, aliens, and big bugs and the atomic bomb. So our horror shifted. And then in the 60s, it shifted again. We were no longer revisiting the classic Universal monsters. They're still comical at this point. And so what happened was you saw a whole new type of monster, and that is the neighbor next door. And that's what Psycho ushered in. And suddenly we went into the psychopath monster kind of thing where the enemy, the monster, is us. So we left aliens and big bugs and we and giant monsters, Godzilla and all that. And we went in to the brooding, simmering 60s with Norman Bates and a whole other uh, slew of, of psychopaths, which, you know, Joan Crawford got involved and Straightjacket and Berserk. And it just went from there. And by the 1970s, it had shifted again. We went from a Norman Bates type killer to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then the devil came into the picture and we have the omen and the exorcist. And then we got, you know, into the supernatural again and ghosts were coming back in. We have the Amityville horror and still there was no nostalgia for the old classic monsters. Ghosts, the devil, psychopaths, really disgusting psychopaths. Uh, torture porn was starting. Then the slasher movie came in. And even while Michael Myers started raising hell and the shark from Jaws was tearing up the screen, there was still no return of the universal monsters. They kind of made a comeback in the 80s. I mean, we had Sting's uh, The Bride, if you remember that. And we tried again, there was a monster squad, Fred Decker's monster squad. But again, these are monsters that just, you know, they, they were the classic monsters, but they really weren't all that scary. Especially in the wake of the 70s, late 70s and alien and, and all of that kind of stuff. New monsters were coming in and replacing the old and no one was really looking back except for laughs. And, you know, to say, oh, those were better. I mean, there was... Uh, a warm spot for Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and all of that. Even though home video came into it, and a lot of these movies were, of course, dumped onto home video, there still wasn't a resurrection for them and a proper avenue for it to start stitching this expanded universe together. So a lot of these films still existed on their own, even though some of them were crossover movies. So there was no internet that could tap into a large fan base. So really looking back on the first part of this expanded universe concept, was it all a gimmick? Was it just a money-making gimmick? I remember the story of the writer of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and he said something like, 
look, I was sitting with, you know, one of the heads of Universal. It might have even been the head of Universal at the time. And they said, look, can you write this? We want to mash up, you know, Frankenstein and the Wolfman. And the guy was like, well, I, I really needed a new car. So, uh, yeah, I wrote it for that. That's how you started crossing things over. It's a gimmick. So now let's move things forward a little bit. In the 80s, you have almost the same thing happening again. 1978 gives us Michael Myers. A year and a half later, we get Pamela Voorhees and her kid, Jason. And then Jason takes the show. And then we get Freddy Krueger. And then we get Pinhead. And then we get Candyman. And we have almost the replacements, the new Wolfman, the new Frankenstein monster, the new creature from the Black Lagoon. We we have all these new universal monsters, only they're not under the universal label. And they started running these long sequel runs. So Friday the 13th, as we know, and then Michael Myers ended up with how many installments. It was only a matter of time before you started crossing these over too. Because again, the same thing happened in the 80s. And you can hear about this on my previous podcast of Friday the 13th Got Lucky, which I believe is episode 11. It's not in front of me right now. History changed once again. In the wake of 9-11 and the AIDS epidemic and domestic terrorism, Oklahoma City, Columbine, suddenly Freddy and Jason, Pinhead, Michael, they're just not all that scary anymore. They become iconic and now we have something else that's starting. We have the internet. And now fans can gather on the internet, they can get together and they can talk about all their favorite characters. And suddenly, all these old films, some you could argue might have even been forgotten, they get resurrected. And part of that is also pirating and torrenting. These movies started getting passed around and files started getting shared. While they're ripping people off financially, they are expanding their base and they are winning a whole new audience. So nostalgia finally started kicking in for the Universal Monsters. Now, in that case, let's still look at Freddy vs. Jason, which you can debate back and forth. Was it any good? I've already talked about this again in a previous podcast, but to me, Freddy vs. Jason is nothing more than a bloody, R-rated Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Maybe it didn't play for the total comic effect with, you know, Bud and, and Lou. The whole concept was a gimmick. These were two waning franchises, and the goal was to breathe new life into them by putting them together. And Tony Todd had told me when I was on tour for Death House, and he had said right out that they wanted to do a crossover between Candyman and Leprechaun. And there has always been talk of bringing Michael Myers into the fray. It would have been a Michael and Freddy. Uh, then Ash from The Evil Dead was going to come in. And there are all these things going on. Now, what's causing all of this? My opinion is, it is the internet. And now fans have direct hubs to come, swap stories, uh, profess their love and their passion for these things, and I'm going to prove it. I googled, just at the top, right here, I'm going to do it right now, I googled the question, why extended universes? And I'm going to read you the very first hit that came back from Gizmodo, and I'm going to read you what it says. 
Because the question of canon plays heavily into expanded universes as gateways to fandom, a lot of being a fan is wanting to know everything. And when you've exhausted the actual material, the expanded universe is there for you. I think that's it. And this is both great and also a huge liability. Because by definition from this one single article, which I will provide in my show notes, it comes down to that expanded universes are almost strictly for fans. And when you start making movies strictly for fans and not making a movie to generally entertain, there's a bit of cinema there, C-Y-N-E-M-A. Are you really making something for true entertainment? Or are you just trying to placate and pander to a specific group? We go now to the Marvel Comics universe, and we're not going to get into the debate over the DCU and the MCU. Disney created a machine, and it worked. And to give you an example, I am not a comic book person. I never was. As a kid, give me monsters, give me Godzilla, that kind of stuff. I didn't really read comics. I knew who a lot of these people were. I knew who Iron Man was. I knew who Thor was. I got all of that. I was exposed to it and I looked at some of it. But for me, it wasn't my thing. I was visiting my brother last week and he was showing me his brand new 70 inch television. And what happened to be playing on TV was, I think it was the Avengers Age of Ultron. I had to ask which one of these is this? I said, my God, how many of these things are there? And and I'm going to be honest with you. I, I tried with the Avengers stuff. I mean, I watched the first three Iron Man movies. Um, I've, I've seen, you know, uh, Spider-Man. I've, I saw Sam Raimi's Spider-Mans and I, I, I gave it a try, I guess. And I tried the first Avengers. I couldn't wait for it to be over. I saw the first Thor movie and then I saw that one. I went to theaters to see it, a Thor, the Dark World. I'm telling you, it got to a point where I was just begging for that movie to be over. And I think just smashing my face into the back of the seat in front of me would have been far more entertaining than me sitting through that movie again. I just, I don't get it. And that's okay. It's not my thing. And it is a lot of other people's thing. And Disney has made it into a juggernaut money-making machine. So you got to give props and credit where credit is due. But to me, watching that one Avengers movie that I never saw, I watched maybe 15 minutes of it. And to me, it was a Fortnite game. I was watching a video game. Much in the same way that it was watching Man of Steel. I had to sit on a plane on the way home. to. I figured, I'm going to watch Man of Steel. By the time that movie was over, I had a headache. The ending was nothing more than just one long video game to me. And all you could picture were kids playing uh, General Zod and Superman, just fighting back and forth. I I didn't get it. I was like, I I guess, you know, to me, I'll always take Christopher Reeve as Superman. I understand, though. It, It may not be my thing, but I totally respect and understand the MCU. And I get why it is what it is. And this universe is completely faceted and detailed and a lot of overlap. And then you have DC characters crossing over. And to me, it's way more than I even want to bother to figure out. Now, I know I've seen online, oh, if you just watch them in this order, you get to understand it. I don't really want to understand it. So I'm going to leave it at that. But however, across the town, 
Universal saw what Disney was doing and said, we got to get on that shit. So what did they have in their vaults that they could do? They didn't really have any superheroes, but they had their classic monsters. Now for me, I remember Del Toro's The Wolfman. And at first I thought in the beginning, looking back on it, I'm incorrect, that The Wolfman was kind of the start of this new dark universe kind of thing. Technically, and it depends on where you read, it is Dracula untold, but there are some that say, no, it's not. And there are others that say, yes, it is. Some will argue, and although I, I feel the consensus is this, is that it was Tom Cruise's The Mummy that was to really start the dark universe. And I saw The Mummy, I saw it in theaters, and I remembered thinking, seeing the preview in theaters, that, oh, so it's Mission Impossible with a mummy. I wasn't all that impressed. I don't think Tom Cruise was right at all for The Mummy. Not only did he overshadow it, from what I understand, he hijacked the entire picture. But when he's walking through that James Bond laboratory with Dr. Jekyll, and we're seeing all these things, and you see the creature from the Black Lagoon's hand under glass, and all this other stuff going on, and that was a huge uh-oh moment for me, because a lot of this was just because you can doesn't mean you should. That exposition, that visual exposition of that table showing all these things and giving us hints because fans of the original Universal Monsters are going to recognize a lot of these things. And of course, Henry Jekyll, we're, we're getting it, I guess. And I'm sitting there in the mummy going, maybe, I, I, look, I'm willing to give this a shot. But by the end of the film, no, I wasn't. The mummy is a mess. It's a big, loud, expensive mess. And the plan to connect the mummy to other coming films, and this would be a springboard, and that Dr. Jekyll high-tech 007Q lab uh, was to be the springboard for others, I just think it's misconceived. And I don't think that the classic universal monsters are meant to be part of an expanded universe. Their horror is actually very personal. When you look at the horror of Dr. Frankenstein and the monster that he made. The horror is the monster's personal torture and then his loneliness and his grief for being alone. That is what made Karloff's performance in The Bride of Frankenstein resonate so strongly with people. The mummy is another one, out of time, out of sync, out of his life, out of his world, and a monster in ours. And you can go through the wolfman is actually a sympathetic character. You can relate addiction to it. You can go to all kinds of things, but the point you can read into whatever you want. This horror is personal. And when you start putting it into an expanded universe where characters can cross over, you, you kind of dilute it all, I think, because the parts may fit, but I, I don't think they fit all that well. There are gaps in those parts. It's like taking a jigsaw puzzle and putting it together to make the whole picture, the whole universe. But once in a while, you do have those pieces that you can fit together, but you know they're not right. And you could leave it that way, but it's clearly meant, even though they're close, they don't fit. And I think that might be the best analogy I can draw to the universal expanded universe. I think they meant well in some respects, but then it went off the rails and this is where I say that The Mummy and Universal's attempt qualify as cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. 
They knew what made their original monsters great and trying to shoehorn them into action movies to rival Disney's MCU, that's just plain cinema because all you're doing is chasing the buck. You're trying to just create a rival franchise without any regard for the personal love and labor that went into the original source material. However, I feel that Universal's attempt at an expanded universe didn't work, and what do you know? I'll leave you with this. They went ahead and made a standalone Invisible Man, and they're working on, I believe, a standalone Another Wolfman, but the Invisible Man made money. People came. The pandemic cut it a little short, but people responded. So maybe we keep things personal, and we don't have to give the fans every detail. That's the other thing. Do not pander just to fandom. Make good stuff. People will come and see it. All you got to do is just make good stuff. 